0: So this morning, we will be returning to our study through the book of Genesis. And we come to Genesis chapter 21, verses 22 through 34. These are the words of God. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me by God, that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring, or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water, which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing, You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs, which you have set by themselves? And he said, You will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be my witness, that I have dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. Our Heavenly Father, these events which you sovereignly brought to pass some 4,000 years ago, we pray, Lord, we know that they are just as meaningful for us today as they were at the time that they happened. For you have recorded them in your word. Open all the meaning you have here, Lord, to teach us, your children, in this day, that we might rejoice and delight in you, and in your will, and in your word, and that we might be your faithful children and witnesses. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've spent much time reading the Old Testament, one of the things you notice is that there are a number of guys who are called Abimelech in the Bible. Now, this word means my father is king, or perhaps father of a king, But it is a royal title, not a name. And you can see this if you compare Psalm 34. Look at the actual title of the psalm where it's telling you what the psalm is. It is David's psalm where he sings of his escape by the grace of God from Abimelech, who was the king of Gath, And David was able to escape him by feigning madness and sanity before Gath so that Gath said, get this crazy guy out of my presence and ran David off. And so he's singing in thanks to the Lord in Psalm 34. But when you turn back to the actual incident, which is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21, there you see that the king's name is actually Achish. You can see that in 1 Samuel 21 verse 10. So his name is Achish. Abimelech is his title. So it's a royal title. And that's why you see so many different Abimelechs showing up in the Old Testament. We're going to meet another Abimelech in just a few chapters in Genesis chapter 26 during the life of Isaac. But that Abimelech is the son or perhaps the grandson of the Abimelech we're reading about in our text in Genesis chapter 21. And this is the same Abimelech that we just read about shortly ago in chapter 20 of Genesis. You remember Abraham and Sarah, they traveled down out of Canaan after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah it's likely that the, that the air and everything was fouled through the destruction and all the smoke and everything. And in, in any event, they came south and came in the, into the land of Philistines. So they're moving south toward Egypt, but they don't go back into Egypt because they've been expelled from Egypt militarily way back in chapter 12. We'll come back to that in just a minute. So they go to the land of the early Philistines. And in chapter 20, when they come there, as Abraham has done before, as he did in Egypt in chapter 12, he says to the ruler of the land, in this case Abimelech, that Sarah is his sister. And he has Sarah tell the same story, that she is his sister. Now, of course, we know That Sarah is his half-sister by his father, but with different mothers. This is before God gave the laws of consanguinity, of further separation genetically and so forth for marriage. And that was true, but the fact that Sarah is Abraham's half-sister, that's a nice bit of trivia. It's not particularly relevant. What is highly relevant is the fact that she is his whole wife. That fact is not mentioned. And so both Pharaoh and then Abimelech in chapter 20 are led to believe that Sarah is just Abraham's sister. And so they take her intending to make her wife of the ruler of the land. So in chapter 20, you'll recall that when that happens, God appears to Abimelech in a dream, and he tells him, you are a dead man unless you return this woman because she is Abraham's wife. And it is a very interesting dream because there's an entire conversation between God and Abimelech in this dream. Abimelech appeals to God, saying that he has taken Sarah in the integrity of his heart that is in the innocence of his heart based on Abraham and Sarah's affirmations that she was Abraham's sister with no mention of the fact that she they were married and in the dream even God says yes I know that you did this in the integrity of the of your heart in the innocence of your heart because you did not know she was married to him, and God says, for that reason that he had kept Abimelech from approaching Shara from from touching her in a sexual way apparently god he he had we know the text tells us that he had stopped up all the wounds of Abimelech's house, but apparently he struck the entire house. That means this whole, this whole land, all the different people and soldiers and everything who are connected with Abimelech. Apparently God had stricken them all with some form of impotence so that even Abimelech himself cannot approach uh, Sarah And so God is saying, this was in my mercy. Through my mercy, I protected you from touching her and therefore sinning against me. I protected you because you acted in innocence. But basically, now that you know the truth, you return her right away. And Abraham, who is my prophet, he is a prophet of mine, he will pray for you and you will be healed. So Abimelech, that's quite a dream, gets up the next morning really early. He's scared to death. He gets all of his men and his soldiers and 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 all those who, who serve him, and he tells them about the dream, and they're all scared to death. So Abimelech comes to Abraham, and, and he asks him, how have I sinned against you? How have I offended you that you would do that you would treat me this way? That basically you would bring me and all of my people under a death sentence? What how what offense have I done? And Abraham explains that Sarah is in fact his half sister and It came to pass when God caused me to wander away from my family and my house that I told Sarah, this is your kindness that you will do for me in every place where we go, say of me, he is my brother. Now, different scholars understand this different ways. We do not have a direct rebuke of Abraham in Scripture Saying specifically that he was wrong. Arguments have been made that he was uh, being crafty because if he's Sarah's uh, brother, then the ruler of the land is going to have to negotiate with him for Sarah's hand which would enable him to then just keep putting off things indefinitely. Whereas if he is her husband, then the ruler of the land can simply kill him and take her. I don't think that's the correct uh, understanding of these passages. I think every one of these moments is a weak moment for Abraham. You have to remember how many chapters are dedicated to Abraham and Sarah. In the book of Genesis, all the way from Genesis chapter 12, like up through 26 or 27. And so you have like, what, 15 chapters of scripture dedicated to their lives. Imagine if we had 15 chapters of scripture dedicated to our lives. Do you think there might be a moment or two along the way that weren't our finest moment? where we may have fallen short and been weak. You know it. You know it would be the case. And that's the way it is with Abraham and Sarah. The scripture doesn't create this little idealistic picture of God's saints. Abraham and Sarah are truly great believers. That's why they're so prominent in Hebrews chapter 11, often called the hall of fame of faith. They truly are our forefather and foremother in the faith. But that doesn't mean they were always at the top of their game, so to speak. They had weak moments. In Egypt, and now in in Philistia here, and Genesis chapter 20, Abraham is basically overcome by fear. This is a repeat of the Garden of Eden. As a husband, if there is a danger that is presented... It is his job before the Lord to step forward into the danger, to step between his wife, between his wife and or his children, between them and the danger. That's part of being a husband and a father. That's what Adam failed to do in the garden. He gave the serpent direct access to his wife. He left her unprotected. He needs to step forward in between, that's his job. And so Abraham is failing, he's failing in the same way. In fact, he has it set up that if danger is presented in this kind of way or if Abraham perceives it, Sarah has agreed that she is going to step forward in between Abraham and the danger. Do you see how that's backwards? Do you see how that's the Garden of Eden all over again? Yeah, he's not stepping forward, he's stepping back, he's putting his wife between himself and the danger. And in any event, if somebody is willing to kill him as a husband so they can take his wife, do you not think they would kill him as her brother if he failed to give permission for a marriage? Every time the result is the ruler takes Sarah. And God must intervene to protect her, to protect his covenant promises and all of his plans. So I think these are weak moments. Fear got the best of Abraham in these moments. Just like we see uh, uh, Genesis 16 is not the strongest moment for Sarah. That's where Sarah has been, weary. she's weary because she's been barren her whole life. She can't have children. And God has promised that she and Abraham are going to have children. And so in desperation, she comes up with a plan to kind of help God out, a plan whereby her maid, Hagar, is kind of going to be like the ancient version of a surrogate mother. Uh, she will she will give her permission for Abraham to go into her maid, and she will bear a child that will kind of like be legally speaking sarah 's child and We saw how well that worked how you know that was another plan that did not turn out at all, so we see these moments of weaknesses with them which we should be able to identify with so in chapter twenty. Abimelech returns Sarah but he acts in a very different way from Pharaoh back in chapter 12 now Pharaoh gets a dream from God as well but he does not he responds he doesn't want to die but he does not respond in any kind of evidence of faith he goes to Abraham He he carries his military, he militarily escorts Abraham to the border of Egypt and basically expels him, but before he does, he publicly rebukes Abraham in front of all of his people. Basically, he humiliates him in front of everybody and he expels him from Egypt. In other words, don't come back. You're not welcome back here. Abimelech, so that puts in sharp relief what we see from Abimelech in chapter 20. Instead of doing that, he gives Abraham a thousand pieces of silver for Sarah's sake. So that is given as public proof that she is innocent and that she is untouched. He also gives Abraham sheep and oxen and servants, all kinds of gifts, and Not only does he not escort him to the border and say, don't come back, he invites Abraham to stay in the land as long as he wants and wherever he wants, chapter 20, verses 14 through 16. In other words, there are a lot of indicators that Abimelech came to fear the true and living God and even to believe in the God of Abraham. There just doesn't seem to be any kind of explanation for the kind of actions that we see coming from Abimelech apart from faith in the true and living God. And it's interesting because when Abraham is explaining to Abimelech why this deception, why did you deceive me in this way and bring me and my whole people under a death sentence, Abraham said, well, I said to myself, surely the fear of God is not in this place, in the land of the Philistines. But we find out that, well, that's not true, because God is actually working here. There is the fear of God in this place. God is bringing the fear of God to this place, and he has the ruler of the land actually responding. And we see further indications of faith in Abimelech, in chapter 21, in our current text today. Abimelech is Abraham's superior in human terms. I'm talking about who owns the most land, who has the most wealth, who has the most military might, all those sort of things. Abimelech owns the land where Abraham is sojourning. Abraham is very wealthy, but Abimelech even more so. Abraham has military might. He has a lot of men, and and a certain number of them are trained as soldiers. But Abimelech has a lot more. Now, you can see the fact that Abimelech, humanly speaking, is the superior between the two of them in verse 27. Because you notice when they actually ceremonially enact the covenant, the gifts flow in one direction. They go from Abraham to Abimelech, not the other way. That is a formal recognition that humanly speaking, Abimelech is the superior. And that raises the question, Why would Abimelech, who is the superior, the ruler and owner of the land with a greater military and a greater wealth, why would he seek a covenant with Abraham? If anything, you would expect it to be the other direction. Well, the only reason that makes sense here, again, is faith in the true and living God. Look at verse 22. What is the reason that Abimelech comes to his inferior, humanly speaking? God is with you, Abimelech says. God is with you in all that you do. We see here a recognition by Abimelech that what really counts in life, big picture, is not who has the most right now, but who has the blessing of the living God upon them. That is the most important thing. Abimelech wants to be under the blessing of the living God, like Abraham is. And he wants the same thing for his children and his posterity to follow. And he wants the same thing for his whole land. He wants the blessing of God on him and his kids and his grandkids, all those connected with him, and the entire land over which he rules. And so he comes seeking a long term generational covenant with Abraham. You can see that in verse 23. Now, Abraham agrees to enter a covenant with Abimelech, but during the ceremony, Abraham does something unusual. In addition to the sheep and oxen that he gives to Abimelech in order to ratify this covenant, he also takes an additional seven ewe lambs and sets them off by themselves in verse 28 that leads Abimelech to ask what they are for, verse 29. In other words, this is not part of the typical ratification of the covenant. Abraham says that they are another gift which operate as his witness that he has dug a particular well that is right there where they are forming the covenant. And he says that Abimelech's men, that's going to be his herdsmen, his shepherds, Seized this from Abraham's herdsmen and shepherds. And Abraham is saying, I, me, my men, we dug this well and your men seized it. Verses 25 and 30. Now Abimelech, as he did in chapter 20, says that he knew nothing of this matter. And so he doesn't know who actually did it. He's not justifying it. He's just saying, this is the first I've heard of this. You haven't said anything to me up to this point. So all of that is folded into the covenant, which Abraham and Abimelech ratify by oath. And that's how this particular place came to be called Beersheba, which means either well of the oath or well of the seven, because in Hebrew, the word oath and the word for seven are very close. You can almost kind of rhyme them. And so you keep seeing the number seven show up in this passage over and over and over again. So it's the well of the oath or the well of the seven in verse 31. So what does each receive as a result of this covenant? Well, Abraham receives formal public recognition from the ruler of the land, that he dug this well. And that's a big deal because it means that Abraham will have sure use of that well going forward. That's not a small thing, given that Abraham doesn't own any of this land. He's there as a visitor, as a sojourner. He doesn't have any ownership rights to the land. But now he does get the right of the use Of this well. That's a big deal when you have a lot of herds and flocks. Abraham also gets the rights of covenant when it comes to resolving any of the disputes that will come about in the future because you're dealing with owners here with very large uh, herds and flocks that are grazing the same general land. And who have many shepherds and herdsmen out there working whose job it is to take care of those herds and flocks. And it's natural in a fallen world, you're going to have some people stepping on one another's toes in this process in a fallen world. You see the same thing today, even when you have Christian brothers and sisters involved in various businesses with one another. Everything does not go seamlessly in a fallen world, and stuff comes up. You need a Christian way, a biblical way, under principles of equity and and covenants together so that you have a mechanism for working all of those things out in the future. If we lived in a perfect world where nothing ever went wrong, you wouldn't need those same provisions But in a fallen world, you need to come together when nothing is going wrong yet and work out what are the principles by which we are going to get along and work things out in the future. So Abimelech gets generational covenant relationship with Abraham, the prophet of God, which means by extension it gives him the next best thing to being in a formal covenant relationship with God himself. Abimelech also gets covenant assurance that Abraham will deal with him faithfully and not falsely. He Notice that language. Swear to me that you will not deal with me falsely. Now, why would he say that? Well, that's just what Abraham did in chapter 20. He said, this is my sister, as though that's all she is, and left out the fact that uh, she was his wife. He wants Abraham to deal with him like a covenant brother. He wants Abraham to reciprocate the kind of kindness that Abimelech has already shown him starting back in chapter 20. You see a lot of graciousness there where he says, You, relate, you remain in the land as long as you want and wherever you want. That's kindness. And interestingly, the, the, uh, the word that uh, Abimelech uses for kindness here, the Hebrew word has said, that's the same word that's often used in the Old Testament to speak of God's loving kindness to his people. What it means is God's never changing, never failing love toward his people and his kindness toward them. That's what the book of Ruth is about. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It's all about Hesed. What does the kindness of true love look like at the human level? That's what you see between Naomi and Ruth and Boaz in the book of Ruth. So big picture, what we see here in this passage, and the reason why this passage is included, I believe, because you have to remember There's times in which ten years, a whole decade of Abraham and Sarah's life, nothing will be recorded in Scripture. It's just nothing there recorded. Out of all the things that could be recorded about their life, this is one of those things. And so why is this here? It's not just here because somebody's saying, oh, there was this other thing that happened. Everything is in Scripture for a reason. It is important. God wanted it here, and he wanted this passage here. And I think one of the things that God wants us to take out of this is this theme that we see in Scripture, and that is the theme of God using his blessing upon his people in order to draw others to himself. God using his blessing, his grace, his mercy upon his people in order to draw unbelievers to himself. We see this sentiment in Isaiah 45 and verse 22. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. A lot of times when we see God focus in on Abraham and then his children, Isaac uh, and Jacob and Joseph and so on down the line, and when we see him create from nothing a nation called the nation of Israel, um, we, can, we can begin to think that it's all about them. That's all that God cares about. And that was part of the problem of the attitude of the Israelites as time went forward. It's all about us. But we see everything that God was doing with Abraham and with Israel always has the entire world in view. He's working through one man. He's working through one nation to reach all nations And all peoples. And that's what we see in Isaiah 45. There is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And you'll recognize this language. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall take an oath. That's quoted in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, and applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see this language about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. And we see the way it is quoted here the salvational. Uh, context in which it appears, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing, that 's not talking about a military regime imposed on an unwilling world that 's the kingdoms of fallen men that 's not the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. His is a kingdom, a transformational kingdom brought to a world made willing by the power of the Holy Spirit and the living out of the gospel by God's people. And that's what you see here when he's talking about every knee bowing, every tongue confessing. It's not at the point of the spear. It's by the sword that comes out of Jesus' mouth. That is the word of God, the word of the gospel. So this picture of the kingdom of God and all the ends of the earth is a picture of the knowledge of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 6. We'll get a little closer picture of how God uses his blessing on his people to bring unbelievers to himself. Here it says to Israel, this is right before Israel goes in to conquer the land, this is your wisdom. And remember, wisdom in the Bible means skill, or artistry the guy who designed all the gold and the silver and the bronze and all that art in the tabernacle God said that he had given this man the spirit of wisdom He had the skill and the artistry to create this beauty. And so he is said to have wisdom. God says to his people, this is your wisdom. This is your skill. This is your artistry. This is part of your beauty before the world. In the sight of all the peoples who will hear all these statutes, they're going to see your laws. They're going to see the way your society is organized, the way authority is dispersed all under the word of God throughout your society. And they're going to say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? So you see, what happens when God pours out his blessing on a people That's something that can be seen from many, many miles away. Now, people can't necessarily see from many miles away the relationship with God that is the source and wellspring of all this, but they can see the result. People can smell around the world freedom and prosperity and opportunity. They can smell it and they want it. Who wouldn't want that for their children and their grandchildren? And so they come. But when they come, the way God designs it to work is the closer they get, the more evidence of, of wisdom and beauty and skill that they see and all these different aspects, the laws of the society, the justice, the way authority works. All of that, they see that beauty and then they finally come to realize that this is a result of the one true and living God that these people worship and serve. And they realize that's the wellspring. And so they're like Abimelech. God is with you in all that you do. They not only want to be part of the people, they want to have a relationship with the one true and living God who has produced all this. They get it. That's by God's design, the way this witness is supposed to work. And uh, you can see God speaking of this in, 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 in big picture terms in Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 14. God says to Israel in this passage, he describes Israel as his bride. And basically, he says that he he took her from nothing. She was dying out in the desert. He took her. He swore an oath to her. She became his. He cleaned her up. He lavished her. He decked her out, embroidery and silk and fine linen and gold and a crown, everything, he says. And he says, your fame went out among the nations. That's by God's design. Her fame goes out among the nations. Why? Because of your beauty. Because you're so beautiful. Here's a fundamental thing that's always true in life. Beauty attracts. And ugliness repels. And God would have it so. And he uses that constantly to witness. Your beauty was perfect. How was this beauty attained? Through my splendor, says God, through my splendor which I bestowed on you. God bestows his splendor on his people. That makes them beautiful in a myriad of ways and beauty attracts. People come, but they must then see the connection. The witness goes back to God. The problem with Israel, it says in verse 15, but you trusted in your own beauty as though you're responsible for it. And you played the harlot because of your fame. In other words, Israel came to assume that she was just beautiful in her own right. That it was all just natural. It was something she could take credit for instead of giving testimony to the true and living God who made her beautiful because he bestowed his splendor upon her. Now, since we see this theme in Scripture, how God puts his blessing upon his people over time and uses that blessing to witness to others, how can we walk in light of that? How can we walk in God's blessing and its witness? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that that God's blessing... And it's witness to the world does not mean that we live a trouble-free or stumble-free life. It does not mean we live a trouble-free or stumble-free life. Consider Abraham and Sarah, how many trials and hardships they encountered, starting with having to leave their homeland and all of their people. And then there's a famine in the land, and then they have to go to Egypt, and then they have to face Pharaoh. It's a constant, all kinds of hardships and trouble. Sarah was barren for so, so, so many years. How hard was that? Also consider, we looked a few weeks ago at the book of Ruth. Consider Naomi in the book of Ruth, this one that that God bestowed beauty upon this woman in her godliness because um, in the toughest of times, her daughters-in-law don't want to leave her, even though she's encouraged them to go back to their people, and Ruth will not leave her. That's because of a beauty which God bestowed upon Naomi in her life that Ruth is saying, I will not leave you. I will die where you die. Your God is my God. Your people are my people. But Naomi didn't necessarily feel beautiful. She did not have an easy life. She's living in a foreign land. She loses her husband, and then she loses her two sons. Then she has to return to Israel where she's penniless. She has nothing. There's some family land, but it's been hawked for unpaid debts, a long, long time ago. And so she's, she's basically saying to Ruth, look, the best thing you can do is get away from me because I'm just like a boat anchor. I'm just going to take you to the bottom. That's not what Ruth sees. Ruth sees the beauty of God's blessing that he, that she, that he has bestowed upon Naomi. Consider the nation of Israel as a whole. How many trials and hardships she encountered. She was captive to Pharaoh for however long. She spent 40 years in the desert. She had to conquer seven nations more powerful than she was each one of them. And and she stumbled many times. There was the golden calf incident. There was lying about the land and, and refusing to enter it the first time in many other ways that Israel stumbled. God still brought her through, bestowed his splendor upon Israel and made her beautiful and sent her fame throughout the world. So walking in God's blessing and being part of that witness does not mean leading a trouble-free or stumble-free life. A lot of times the greatest beauty that God builds within us is the fact that we do go through hardships and other people see that, but they see something different that God has built into us in the midst of the hardships. It's the hardships that make it stand out so much. Anybody can be a joyous and, 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 a, and an open and gracious person when times are great. Few are that way when times are really hard. What it does mean is persevering with God who perseveres with you. Persevering with God who perseveres with you. Look at First Peter chapter 1. Peter is speaking of our salvation here in in verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has begotten us again to a living hope. Who's responsible for us being born again? Us or God? We're the recipients. It is God who is acting. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God. Why do we persevere with God? Because he perseveres with us. We are kept by the power of God. Through what? How does the power of God work in us to keep us persevering with him? Through faith. Faith is the hand that God uses to grab us and to hold on to us. And so show his power. Look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though you have been grieved by various trials. That's part of the process. What are the trials for? That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold, though tested by fire, may be found to result to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he pictures God here as a refiner of gold and silver who heats it up. That's the trials that's the hardship he heats up the gold so that any impurities float to the top and then God skims it off the top skims it out of our lives that's exactly what we see him doing with Abraham and Sarah is heating up the gold and skimming off the impurities making them go from 7-carat gold to 10-carat gold to 14-carat gold and uh, on up the line That is precious. That's not just the faith which we say we have. That's the faith which people come to see undeniably that we have because it endures the hardships of life. So this idea of persevering with the God who perseveres with us is what is called clinging in Deuteronomy chapter 30, clinging to the Lord. Look at verse 20. That you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life. That's what persevering with God who perseveres with us looks like from us, clinging to the Lord. Think about Jacob who wrestles with God later on in Genesis. Jacob's no match for God, but God wrestles with Jacob the way a father would wrestle with a two-year-old. And God puts his hip out of joint at one point. Jacob is no match, but he won't let go. He just keeps clinging. He just keeps clinging. He says, I will not let go unless you bless me. He's clinging to God. That's what it looks like. So what do we persevere in specifically? What are some of the high points if we want to cling to God? Number one, we persevere in worship. Notice in verse 33 of our text in Genesis 21, when this covenant, all these events are over, what does Abraham do? Abraham planted a terremoto tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. He worshiped God. God is blessed. This is a good time. He worships God. Well, what does Abraham do when Everything is not going so well. What does he do in bad times? Genesis chapter 13, verse 1 and 4. This is when Abraham comes limping out of Egypt because Pharaoh has publicly humiliated him and militarily expelled him for not telling the truth about Sarah. What does Abraham do now? He went up from Egypt and he went to the place of the altar that he had made at first. And there, Abram called on the name of the Lord. That's what it looks like to cling. That's what it looks like to persevere with the God who perseveres with us. Good times and bad, praise be the name of the Lord. We come together. We worship the living God in good times and bad. It means we persevere in confession, covenant renewal, and sanctification. Those are all essential elements of worship. Confession, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We persevere in confession. We're not even capable, folks, of confessing all our sins. We don't confess our way to God. That's what we have to realize each Sunday. We're not capable of confessing our way to God. We don't even know so many of our sins. If God opened our eyes to know all of our sins, it would crush us. We would never get up off the ground. It would crush us. He doesn't, we we can't confess our way to God. We confess the things that he lays on our hearts, a small little part that we understand. But the thing is, we're coming to God confessing in Christ. Christ is confessing the rest for us. And covenant renewal just means. It's like a a couple that's been married for 50 years who are renewing their vows together. That's what happens every single week. God tells us every single week, one more time, that he loves us. We are his children. We are his people. And we respond by reaffirming our love and commitment to the God who saves us. That's what covenant renewal is. And this is where sanctification comes. Finally... We persevere in fruitfulness to God over the long haul. Fruitfulness to God over the long haul. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 1. He talks about how God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. And he tells us how we are going to grow in this. So in verse 5 he says, Giving all diligence... Add, build upon your faith, build upon your faith virtue and upon virtue with knowledge and upon knowledge with self-control and upon self-control with perseverance and upon perseverance with godliness and upon godliness with brotherly kindness and upon brotherly kindness with love. He says, if these things are yours and abound, in other words, you are increasing. We may be increasing slowly. We may be increasing in different rates about these different qualities, but over the long haul, we are growing in fruitfulness. That's how we persevere with the God who perseveres with us. That's how we take our place in a conscientious way within the blessing of God and so let him work his witness to the world.